God's grace, peace, and mercy be with you on this fifth Sunday after the Epiphany, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 143 years ago, the world's most distinguished astronomer was certain there was canals and rivers on Mars. Percival Lowell, esteemed for his study of the solar system, had a particular fascination with the red planet. He spent years squinting into the eyepiece of his giant telescope in Arizona, mapping out what he believed was a complex water distribution system far more advanced than anything humans had built on Earth. He believed in the possibility that a much older and wiser race of beings existed on Mars and that they were desperately trying to tap into the polar ice caps for a water source in order to survive. Now, Lowell's observations were not widely accepted by his peers. They claimed that while they could see some dark areas on Mars through their telescopes, they didn't see interconnecting lines. Nevertheless, Lowell's theory of intelligent life on Mars spilled over into popular culture and fueled a public fascination with Mars and Martians, which, well, if you remember, dominated a good chunk of the 20th century. That is until the 1960s, the year I was born, in fact. Mariner 4 flew by Mars and snapped this photo, showing Mars to be much like our own moon, cratered and desolate. Today, with satellites and rovers and with high-definition cameras on them, we know there are canals and canyons, but they're not straight, and they weren't made by Martians either. But let's not forget about Percival Lowell. What was the deal with him? For being such a famous astronomer, how could he have seen so much on Mars that wasn't really there? Well, there are two possible reasons. One, he just wanted to believe so much that there was intelligent life on Mars that he thought what he was seeing was what he believed. The second reason is a little more provable. (laughs) See, in his efforts to try and cut down the glare and steady the image when he was viewing the planets, Lowell reduced the aperture or the, the opening of the lens in his telescope to the point where an unintended consequence happened. And this was only discovered years after his death. He was seeing the blood vessels in his own eyeball, which accounts for the complex network of canals he saw not only on Mars, but on Venus too. That's a diagram there on the, on the right, of his diagram of Venus. And we know that Venus is a solid white ball. It's opaque. Can't see anything on it because of its thick, cloudy atmosphere. When Jesus warns that in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and warns of seeing the speck of sawdust in another's eye while not noticing the log or the plank in your own eye, could he not be referring to the spiritual equivalent of Percival Lowell's problem? 
over and over, we see faults in others because we want to believe they're a certain way, often not as good as us. And we think we have a first-hand view of other people's shortcomings when, in fact, we've just been seeing them with our own shortcomings drawn over their surface. The way we see others is distorted by our own imperfect physiology. See, Jesus knew this when he talked to his disciples in Galilee. He was preparing them for the work they would be doing, spreading the good news about him all over the world. And he wasn't going to have them go out and start judging others before first examining themselves first so that they could speak to people with humility and empathy and compassion rather than just clobbering them over the head with the law, with the commandments. And this teaching is for us as well because we are also Jesus' disciples. Yet we see these verses misused all the time, don't we? Oh, Christians shouldn't judge people because Jesus doesn't judge anyone. He loves everybody. What a gross error that is. After all, Jesus is the ultimate judge, isn't he? Because he was sent by the Father. Eyewitnesses wrote about him judging people all the time. He called the woman out for sleeping around with other men and warned her to stop it. He told the blind man to stop sinning after he restored his sight or something worse would happen. He judged the Pharisees constantly. The difference, though, is being humanly judgmental, you know, which is when you're preoccupied with criticizing and fault-finding others, right? And then there's God's way, God's judgment. Now, as Christians, we can certainly admonish someone for their behavior or lifestyle after examining our own first. Until you've done that, put the best construction on the other person because you may not know their whole story or their intentions. And notice the exaggerated language Jesus uses with his friends here. Specks and logs, you know, planks, <laughs> a beam of wood and a speck of sawdust, completely opposite of each other, right? He's showing them with these extreme opposites how absurd it is to harp on the sins of others when they haven't asked the Lord for forgiveness of their own sin first. It doesn't mean you can't judge others. You can warn people. Or counsel them. They may not want to hear it. Nevertheless, if you examine yourself first and discover that you had the same faults or are living in the same manner that's outside what God wants for his people, ask for forgiveness from the Lord. Receive it. Then you are prepared to speak to the other person in humility. And you might even say to them, hey, you know what? You and I both are in the same boat. Let's work on this together. It's one of the most difficult tasks, though, for the Christian, isn't it? To speak to a fellow believer about some personal fault or danger they might be putting themselves in, especially when it's a loved one or a close friend, it's hard. 
We often shy away from it. But it's a task we can do without Percival Lowell syndrome, if you will, because Jesus has given us a basic rule to observe when the opportunity comes. Look at yourself first. Repent. And if you don't realize your own sins and faults, you're not going to properly counsel someone else about theirs. All right, so that's enough about that. I want to move on now to the, to the next thing Jesus says. Don't give dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before pigs. They'll trample over them and then turn to attack you. I've often wondered what this means. Jesus isn't being literal here. You know, the disciples don't have pearls to throw before swine. <laughs> he means them. Right? He compares them, his disciples, to what is holy and to pearls, something valuable. And he's saying that if they judge others in a hypocritical way, you know, opposite of what he just taught them, it's like throwing these precious children of God out of the community of believers, you know, and then causing them to turn and attack the congregation. Now, I'm not saying this doesn't happen in the Christian church today, Catholic or Protestant, you know, but you can certainly watch this play out today on your own TV. You know, with these programs... Uh, where members of certain religions or cults or sects get thrown out of their own community for their behavior, right? They're not following the rules of the community, so they get thrown out. And not all these people just quietly go away, right? Some of them turn and attack with lawsuits and documentaries in an effort to expose the hypocrisy and, and in many cases, abuse. Anyway, Jesus goes on to say, ask and it will be given. I don't know, genie in a bottle? Gumball machine God? Not quite, huh? But Jesus has just given his disciples the tools to properly admonish those who are in error or spiritual danger. So now he follows it up with the assurance that their Father in heaven hears them, and answers the prayers of his children. He's saying, don't be afraid to ask. Don't be shy. Don't consider yourself unworthy. Jesus is giving encouragement here in the midst of all this teaching because applying it, applying all this teaching later on for the disciples, it's going to be hard, isn't it? They're going to, they're going to be up against some resistance. And spreading the gospel isn't going to come easy. And this brings us to the golden rule. And you were all taught this from, a, from an early age, weren't you? I was too, even though I was not raised in a Christian home. You don't like pain, do you? So don't give others to pain. Or don't give others pain because like you, they don't like it either. It's a, a basic empathy lesson, right? And you can find this basic tenet across most, if not all, the world's major religions. 
Hey, you can even find it in the, in the commercial for a courtyard by Marriott. I just saw it the other night. We like to treat others the way, I, I can't remember how the, how it goes. We treat others the we treat you like the way you would, I don't remember how it goes, but it's, it's basically the golden rule. You know, it's, it's even in commercials. Do not do to another that which you hate. Uh, this is how it basically goes in the, all the other world's religions, like Hindu, Islam. It goes something like this. Do not do to another that which you hate to be done to you. Here's the difference, though, with this rule. When the God of truth hands it down to you. See, Jesus goes beyond the negative command to not do something to a, po- to a positive command. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Notice the difference? Jesus starts out with a positive command. So that if the situation were reversed, you would have something good done to you. I mean, this flies in the face of our critics who say Christians or Christianity is all about don't do this and don't do that. They completely miss that in truth and reality, we're given the charge to do exactly what our naysayers believe they're all about, doing good to others. Well, this was a lot to tackle in one day. But I hope you get a new or renewed sense anyway what this whole Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's to show us our sins as well as the path on which we, repentant children of God, walk and seek. And about this, Luther says, the Christian remains on the hard path or enters through the narrow gate to heaven, namely through Jesus, the Word made flesh for us. We say, I am helpless. God help me. And it all rests in His hands. He promised and said, Just cling to my Word, and I will uphold you. When you find yourself in any distress, you will learn to continue in my Word. This will free you and make you a true disciple. That's good news. And may this be so for you, my friends, until the days of our distress is finally over. Amen. Now, next week, Matthew chapter 6 and the Lord's Prayer.